Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. Welcome back. We're in Genesis 44, so why don't we pray and we'll get into it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this morning and the opportunity to gather together around your word. We pray that you'd be with us as we read, that you would grant us understanding and insight, that you would soften our hearts to submit to your word above all else. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Genesis 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, Follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes. And every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him on the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants. Both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. 
When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me. And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him. You will bring down my gray hair as an evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Love how the chapter break hits pause right at the height of the tension there. It leaves it unresolved for us. Some of those chapter breaks are not particularly helpful. But we'll go with it for now. What stands out to you in chapter 44? And it forms a test, doesn't it? Because, I mean, based on their character, when he last saw them, they're going to let Benjamin, you know, let whatever's going to happen to Benjamin happen to Benjamin. They passed the first test because they came back for Simeon. Although we kind of get the sense from the narrative that the only reason they came back for Simeon is because they also needed food. And so what's going to happen with Benjamin? Are they going to treat Benjamin the way they treated Joseph and just for their, for their own sake abandon their brother? You're right. There is, I think there's two sides to that. There's, it's both. He's kind of getting them back a little bit. But he's also testing them to see if their character has changed. Or if they're the, the same people he knew when he was 17. What else do you notice? Good question. Do these guys represent the 12 tribes, Joseph and all the brothers? Yes, sir. These are the, the fathers of the 12 tribes. Well, in 44, he's setting them up. I just told Lance the whole story is about how he forgave them. But in 44, he sets them up. Okay. Yep. It does represent the 12 tribes, aren't you? Does the cup bother anybody? This whole association with Joseph and, and divination. He's basically saying, I'm a sorcerer, and this is, these are my tools for my sorcery. And you're stealing the tools of my sorcery. Don't you know that I'm capable of sorcery? So that bothers me a little bit. But there is this strong association with magic in Egypt. And so you would associate, you would expect that a, a powerful official in the service of the Egyptian government would have those kinds of skills. It's part of the setup. It's not an affirmation that Joseph, in fact, does practice divination. He's also explaining why uh, he, he knew that they had the cup. Yes. Yeah, it provides a pretense for, for knowing that the, the cup is with them instead of misplaced somewhere 
at home. Right, yeah. Not that he needs much pretense, right? I mean, he's, he's a man in power. He knew where the cup was before they were there. And they, these foreigners provide a convenient scapegoat for him either way. Notice how confident the brothers are in their innocence, right? They should know better based on how things have gone the last time. They're like, you can kill the one you find it with, and the rest of us will be your slaves. And then the, the answer of the fellow who's come after them, let it be as you say, he's not saying that sounds like a good idea to me. He's saying, let it be as you say, that, that it's not found among any of you. But if it is, that man will stay as a slave, but the rest of you may go back. Benjamin was the second youngest next to Joseph. Benjamin was the second son of Rachel. But he's the youngest okay, of his brothers. Okay. He's the baby brother. Son of the favorite wife. <laughs> yeah. Love that reaction. Yeah, this is the, uh, not that we would necessarily see this in every family, but there is a sense in which this is, the consequences played out of rank favoritism in the family. Having favorite wives and favorite sons. And it's worth, we've, we've commented on this a couple of times, but many people will ask about the patriarchs and say, well, they practiced polygamy. Does that mean that I can't? Right? I mean, the Bible doesn't say you can't. And never mind what Jesus says about one man and one woman from the beginning. Every time, I think without exception, every time we see polygamy portrayed in the Old Testament, it always wreaks havoc in the household. So that instead of God saying, you may not do this, it's as though he says, look at the consequences of making this decision. I was talking with my college Greek instructor yesterday, actually, uh, and he had a student who came to him, or no, he pulled the student aside during the semester because the student hadn't been doing any work. This wasn't me, by the way. And he graded very, very gently. It was very, very hard not to make a good grade. Uh, with Mr. Beck, but this student had not been doing anything all semester, uh, and he, he pulled him into his office and he said, "I'm your instructor, and you know this is how things are going. But, but you realize if I was your employer, I would have to fire you." So he was able to get across to him the consequences of his actions, and that that connected for him, and so he changed and he actually started doing work in the class. But that's something like what we see in the way polygamy is portrayed in the Old Testament. It's instead of the direct, do not do this, we see the consequences laid bare for us so that we could choose otherwise. Well, kings are specifically prohibited from multiplying wives, right? So we, yes, should, we can also take a cue from that, that it's not good for our leaders, it's probably not good for us. Well, but then, of course, right, you're going to open the discussion of what constitutes multiplying wives, right? Is that two or is that three or is it, you know, after you get past six then it's not okay? So I'm not advocating for multiple wives, by the way. <laughs> well, that goes back to Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. That caused trouble. Mm -hmm. And Keturah, as we find out much later. Yeah. So what's on the line when they come back? Benjamin's life. Benjamin's life? Their 
father's uh, sameness? Yeah. Yeah, their father's life. I mean, they, um, Judah in particular just expressly points out that Jacob's life is bound up in Benjamin's. If they come back without Benjamin, that news will kill their father. Never mind that they have Simeon with them. And of course, how many years are we into the famine? There's also the question of, can they come back and get more food from Joseph after this? A few years down the line. What has changed? Right? Because something has changed. And this is part of Joseph's test, is to see if things have changed. Are these the same people he knew when he was 17? And there are, even from very early in the chapter, in the way it's told, indications that things have changed. We know some of what's happened with Judah. But how do we see it in the way this chapter is told? First, they didn't just say, here's Benjamin, have at it, and we're going back home. Yeah. And second, I mean, Judah's actually kind of begging Joseph not to you know, take Benjamin or kill him or just for the fact of his father. So the, their emotions, I think, have changed. Yeah. Thought process on their, or their selfishness, their selfishness with... Um, has changed from what it was with Joseph. What role did Judah play back at the beginning of this whole narrative? Back in chapter 37. Do you all remember? We can turn the page and look. By chapter 37, Joseph's had these dreams. He's telling them to everybody. They think they're the best dreams in the world. Right? And they're his favorite brother for telling him. Uh, (laughs) And then, right, they make the decision to throw him in the pit. And then they're trying to figure out what to do with him, right? And Reuben, who probably doesn't love his brother any more than anybody else does, he's the firstborn. And so he knows he has this responsibility. And so Reuben, we find out his plan is actually to come back to the pit and save Joseph. But he's prevented from doing that because Judah has a brilliant idea. Right? And what's Judah's brilliant idea? Yeah. We get it in verse 26. Right? Like, look, we all know we hate this guy. None of us is quite willing to kill him, even though we'd really like to. But we can make some money. Because here comes a caravan. So verse 26, right? What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Right? We can get rid of him and make some money and avoid blood guilt. Where are you at now? That's in Genesis 37, verses 26 and 27. So we see Judah is the fourthborn. Okay. They have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, then comes Judah. And I've suggested before that this section of Genesis that we often call the Joseph narrative should maybe more properly be called the Judah narrative. There's where they notice the caravan, just like you said, okay. So Judah, who plays such a central role in this chapter and the next, was that guy. He's like, hey, let's sell our brother. And then we had chapter 38 with Judah and Tamar, which didn't seem to make any sense if this whole thing is about Joseph, why are we interested in what happens with Judah and his son and his daughter-in-law and the conceiving children by her? It just doesn't fit, right? It, it interrupts the chapter. 
But when we come to the end of this section, we're going to see, among other things, that Judah is given prominence over his brothers. Joseph is the one who's ruled over Egypt. Joseph is the one with two sons who take his place in the blessing that Jacob pronounces over his sons. But Judah is the one given leadership over his brothers. And here's where we begin to see why. We saw in the previous chapter that Judah is offering himself to his father, saying, we will go down and I will bear the responsibility if I do not bring Benjamin back to you. But it's one thing for him to say that. And it's another thing to be there in the presence of the one who's second in command over Egypt with them ready to enslave Benjamin. And now he's got to step up and deliver on the promise that he made his father. Is he going to do it? Because he already knows with Simeon that he can just leave a brother there and go back home with full wagons and all the food he needs. So is he going to head back home and say, I'm sorry, dad, I blew it. Or is he going to make good on his promise, his father? We see a very subtle hint of how that's about to go in the way the brothers are referred to here back in chapter 43. Sorry, chapter 44. I'm looking for it. Um, So they go. Guy is sent to get them. They tear their clothes, verse 13. They load back up. They're headed back to the city. Look at how they are mentioned in verse 14. Judah and his brothers. Even in the way the narrator is describing them, before Judah actually puts himself in this position and offers himself for Benjamin, the narrator is giving us hints. He's placing Joseph, or sorry, placing Judah in this role of assuming leadership over his brothers. So the one who led them in selling their brother for profit, now in 44 verse 14 and after, is leading his brothers in going back, reconciling with Joseph, and offering himself in Benjamin's place. How do we explain that transformation in his character? What gets us from, hey, let's sell him and make a profit, to I will be a substitute for Benjamin? Obviously the work of the Holy Spirit. Sunday school answer. Yeah, yeah. God, Jesus, Bible, pray, right? Looks a whole lot like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. But what Mike said, he, uh, he realized what he'd done and uh, changed his ways. He seems to really love his dad. Like, I wonder if he realized what had happened to Joseph and, and saw the torment of his dad and living with that all these years. Maybe he's grown close to his dad and realized, I can't, I can't let my dad go through that again. So maybe he just didn't, maybe the love wasn't there before, and now it is now. Yeah. Yeah, I think a huge part of it is, is that, just living for decades with the loss of Joseph and the effect that that has had in the family and seeing that in his dad. I think you're right there. But I think also it's Judah's own experience with his son's and then with Tamar, he lost two sons, 
because of their wickedness. And then withheld his third son from Tamar, to whom, right, she should have been given. And then Tamar pulls things, right, and orchestrates things so that he can be provided for and bears sons. And then, which has taken probably decades, that's running parallel with other things that are happening in Joseph's life. But I think that helps explain Judah's change in character, the things that he went through, the consequences of his own sin, and his reflection on that, which also helps explain why Moses would put that chapter in the midst of this section that seems to be about Joseph. So we've seen that, in a sense, they've, they're passing Joseph's test. The character of his brothers is different. Judah, in particular, has gone through a 180-degree change through not only willing to get rid of his brother, but to sell him for profit, to offering to give himself in place of his brother, knowing that it means that he is selling himself into slavery, that he will never see his home or his father or his children and grandchildren again. What's Joseph going to do with that? That's chapter 45. So take a look at it. And remember, of course, for, for almost all of us, this is not the first time, probably not even the third time that we're reading this. But as much as you can, try and imagine that you're reading this for the first time and that you don't know what is coming. You don't know what Joseph is going to do. The Judah has just said, right? How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. Imagine you're one of his brothers right there. He's clearly starting to lose control of his emotions. He sends everybody out. Is this, right? Are you about to get the ax? Is he going to? Take care of you himself? Like, how's this going to go? So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Imagine again the year in, say, Reuben's place. Or Judah's place. And not only were you about to lose Benjamin, but now the guy who was about to take Benjamin from you is the one you sold into slavery two, three, however many decades ago. And he's not a kid crying at the bottom of a pit. He is second in command of the most powerful nation in the world. And you are at his mercy. And he is distraught and overcome with emotion. And you are at his mercy in that moment. Let's keep reading. You can imagine why it says they were dismayed at his presence, right? They thought he was gone. They thought they'd taken care of him. They had deposited that money. They probably spent it already. And now he's back. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph whom you sold into Egypt, in case you'd forgotten. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here 
For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. You wonder how much he hasn't told Pharaoh for that to be the case. When Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons, according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, But to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. All right. Some things are resolved. Some things are heightened. What stands out to you from chapter 45? Well, Joseph's brothers finally got around to telling uh, Jacob that, uh, that Joseph was still alive. Yes. You wonder how much they told him. Right? Because it says that they, they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them. But is that, does that include, you sold me into Egypt But don't worry, because God meant it for good. I imagine they left that part out. Just just guessing. I wonder if Jacob ever came to know how Joseph came to be in Egypt. What happened then? Yeah. 
they probably wanted to spare the old man some of the details that would have killed him probably. Or he might have killed them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you telling me he's been alive this whole time? It goes to show, too, in the beginning that Joseph understood through his brother's evil that God had ordained or God had set forward what was to come, even though his, what he had to go through once he was sold to Egypt before he got to his power that he had, that it was all at that moment that they came back for him to provide for his family. That it was all set up to God, not by what they did, but what he did. So I think that's... Kind of. So no matter what evil is that we do, God can turn it into good, right, Mike? Yes. I like too that Joseph forgave his brothers without even them having to ask forgiveness. Yeah. Which is unfathomable, right? Like we struggle to believe that. Like how could he be so willing to forgive his brothers? Who clearly anticipate something else. Like as soon as they realize it's Joseph, they're even more afraid than they were. And later, after Jacob has died, they will come to Joseph again. And they'll say, now before he died, dad said, you can't hold this against us. Because they, they cannot believe the depth and the extent of Joseph's forgiveness. That tactic of coming to Joseph after after Jacob dies and saying, Dad said don't hold this against us. That, to me, implies that, yes, Jacob knew, everyone knew that Jacob knew. And if they're going to have to tell Jacob, then this point where they're repeating Joseph's words, where he's saying, you did this, but actually God was behind it, and God sent me here to preserve your lives, and this is God's doing, that would be the perfect time to repeat those words. So I, my guess is that they did have to tell him at this point and used... That's a good point to say that. Remember that time that we brought you Joseph's coat and it was covered with blood? Well, we're the ones who covered it with blood after we sold him into slavery. But guess what God did through all that? (laughs) Joseph is the example of when we understand God's plan to have faith that it's easy to forgive and not hold any grudges, right? Because when you understand that plan, you know, it may take years, like 30, 40 years, however long it took, but when it comes to that and the forgiveness of his brothers who tried to kill him and sell him and everything else, God makes it easy, I think, you know, for us. We need to look at that through Joseph. Sorry. Just continuing that thought, you've got to wonder when... Joseph came to understand things in this light. Because I bet it wasn't on his way down into Egypt. Probably not in the prison. Yeah. But it, it was because I think it's the first time it comes up is in 45. Was it at that moment when he starts talking to his brothers? You know, it could be, oh. Well, we don't know, but, you know, it is a good point, I think. When did he know? Yeah. We talk about God's providence about how he directs and disposes and governs all things to his appointed end. We talk about how he has a a special care over his church. And 
I don't think we struggle to see the extent of God's control of the world. If he is who he says he is. But sometimes we struggle to remember that that control is in the hands of one who is good and wise and holy and loving. Because our experience of people who are in control of things, whether it works for good or for ill, is never an experience of control exercised by one who is all holy, all wise, all good, and all powerful. And I think we often transfer our experience of others' control to our understanding of providence. He's got the whole world in his hands. And we, we understand and affirm that, but sometimes we struggle to remember that the hands that hold the world are good hands. And something that Joseph reminds them here, will remind them again, will end the book of Genesis with a resounding affirmation, is that what you meant for evil, God meant for good. All of these things that happened along the way, things that occurred just because, things that you actively intended for evil, God used for good. And if we reflect on that, if we remember that, that the one who exercises that control over all things is good, loving, and, and all-powerful, that's an important reminder, too, that, that he's not going to begin a well-intended plan that he's not able to execute. And that allows us, I think, to rest in the knowledge of of God's sovereignty. It's a doctrine that, that comforts rather than frightens. If we forget that he's all wise, all holy, all powerful, and all loving, then God's sovereignty is terrifying. But if we remember that and remember his special care for his church, then in the midst of experiences and happenings that don't make sense to us, and trouble us deeply, we can rest in the goodness of God. It's a few minutes early, but why don't we wrap up there? Let's pray. Yes, sir. Absolutely. It's interesting, and it, it, uh, I wonder why Joseph, in verse 24, Joseph uh, told his brothers, do not quarrel on the way. It indicates to me that they apparently didn't get along real well uh, with each other. Well, why else would he make that statement to them, you see? Well, can you imagine how this conversation would have gone on the way home? I told you we should have got him out of the pit. No, no, no. See, I told you we should sell him, and look how it worked out. <laughs> well, Clive, right here, says he gave Benjamin 300 pieces of silver. That all starts an argument right there about the money. Yeah. <laughs> that may have. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> what Mike said was very important. This whole thing of the forerunner of Christ, you mentioned Christ. The way this guy forgave all his brothers, 
the disclaimer at the end of the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. As well as having a brother willing to substitute himself on behalf of another. Yeah, way he can wait the way it's a whole forerunner to uh, Jesus. The way he forgives us. Well, yeah, Clyde, that's 300 pieces of silver could start some argument right away, don't you think? Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, jealousy would do some of that. It would cause a lot. Yeah, why'd you give him 300 pieces of silver? Yeah. All right. Let's pray. Lord, we continue to thank you for this, this slow burn in Genesis that, that shows us the depth and extent of your providence as you cared for Joseph and for his entire family through horrible circumstances that you brought Joseph through. And yet you meant it for good. You used it as a part of fulfilling your promise to Abraham. And along the way, you used it to keep the world fed. Lord, we marvel at the extent of your watchful care, of the depth of your wisdom, of the extent of your love on display in places where we sometimes feel it is absent. We pray that you would open our eyes to recognize more and more of your same watchful care at work in our own lives. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.